Hi, I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Today, our conversation with two authors. The first, Sarah Manning Paskin. She's a neurologist at the University of Pennsylvania. We talked about her new book, A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain. In it, she uses personal stories from her patients and their families to unpack the molecular changes in our brain's chemistry that cause diseases. Later on, we speak with Sarah Fay about her new book, Pathological, The True Story of Six Misdiagnoses. In it, she chronicles her uphill battle to find a reliable diagnosis. We talk to Fay and a panel of experts about how we diagnose mental health disorders. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. Our minds can play all kinds of tricks on us, and as Lauren Kane will tell you, those tricks can be life-changing. In 2016, Lauren was a recent college graduate with a love of fiction writing. She lived at home with her mother, consuming books and binging shows like The Walking Dead. I woke up today in the hospital, and that's all I know. Things got crazy. You won't believe the panic. It's not fit to be on. I know how it must sound. The dead people. The walkers. Don't you get mad. One August day, Lauren was having trouble having trouble walking, so her mother took her to the hospital. And when a doctor approached Lauren for tests, she lashed out and started yelling, Don't you see she's a walker? Lauren's fiction had become her reality. She suffered from a rare disease that would take months for doctors to diagnose. Lauren's story is part of a collection put together by Sarah Manning Peskin and her debut book, A Molecule Away from Madness. Sarah Manning Peskin is an assistant professor of clinical neurology at the University of Pennsylvania, and she joins us now. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So our brains are incredibly complex organs that direct all our functions. How can something as small as, as a molecule or a piece of genetic code derail our ability to operate normally? So we think of DNA as essentially the instructions for operating a human body, but it's incredibly intricate. And there are some large stretches of code that don't really matter. And then there are some stretches of code that are so important that if a single thing is changed, we can actually essentially turn into new people. It can totally uproot our personalities. And part of what I wrote about in the book is these remarkable Achilles heels, where the brain is the most complex machine in the in, in essentially known to humankind. But there are these points where we're so weak. What questions were you hearing from your patients and fellow researchers that, that made you want to explore this issue through your book? I think I wanted to highlight the loneliness of having some of these rare conditions. And so a lot of these people, they come to the hospital, they have all these people coming into their hospital room at all times of night, they have way too much attention, and then they go home, and there's no one checking in on them. And it's extraordinarily lonely. And it feels like they've sort of gone from being overly monitored to really not having much attention at all and feeling really isolated. And so I wanted to write about some of these conditions that cause people to really feel lonely and and to feel like they lack support. Well, Lauren Kane, which we should note as a pseudonym to protect her privacy, suffered from a rare illness and it, it attacked her brain with similar effects to someone taking PCP. What was going on in her mind? 
Exactly. So it turned out actually, and this is a diagnosis, her mom actually made the diagnosis. Her mom found an article uh, and brought it to her doctor's attention and said, do you think this could be what's causing my daughter's illness? And she was right. And it turned out actually that uh, Lauren Kane had a small tumor on her ovary. And the tumor was itself wasn't big, wasn't pressing on anything, wasn't causing her any problems, except that the tumor at a molecular level looked a little bit like brain cells. And so her immune system started making molecules called antibodies. It's a kind of protein. And it started making these proteins to attack her, her ovarian tumor, but actually it also attacked the brain. And that's what caused her disease. And the way that the molecule works actually is very similar to PCP. And so at a molecular level, it was almost like she was on a constant drip of PCP. And so it caused her to dissociate. So there was sort of a loss of connection between what was going on in reality and what was going on in her brain. So these memories that burst forth from her brain were interpreted as reality. There was no check. And ultimately, when doctors removed the tumor, they treated her with the medications that suppressed her immune system. She actually got much, much better and is now back to, to living her life. What's your process for diagnosing a patient, especially when we're talking about these rare diseases that, like you said, you, you may not even be aware of it? So in the clinic, there's a, a lot of things that we do to try to diagnose people. The first thing is actually talking to them and talking to a family or friend, family member or friend. Turns out we're pretty terrible at assessing our own cognition. And so we have all of our patients come in with someone else who knows them well. And so that helps us figure out what's really going on. And then from there, we actually do what's called cognitive testing, which is sort of like brain games to figure out where are people actually having difficulty? You know, someone may say they're repeating themselves in conversation, but at a more granular, granular level, can we actually figure out what parts of their brain aren't working? And then we also use imaging, things like MRIs or PET scans, to get a picture of their brain and figure out, you know, what's too big, what's too small, um, what's working well, what's not working well. And then on occasion, we'll get some more molecular level uh, data, things like um, specialized PET scans or spinal fluid or something from the blood. And we really put all that together. And it's only with that full package that we're able to say, you know, this is what we think is going on. Ideally, what we can say to a patient is, if I were to take a piece of your brain out and look at it under a microscope, this is what I think I would see. Even though we don't really, you know, we don't biopsy most patients, we don't take a piece of their brain. Our goal is to do as much as we can, even though we can't actually look at things under a microscope. One of the fascinating pieces of your book is, is how brain science has evolved over time and, and the way medicine thought about people's brains and behavior and what might be an illness as opposed to, you know, something, something else. What was the most interesting part of how this science has developed for you as you were researching the book? I think I had no clue how much these scientists really put their lives on the line and how much the things that they discovered were often shot down early on. So even taking Alzheimer's disease. So Ali's Alzheimer's was this German neuropsychiatrist, and he meets a 51-year-old woman who's lost her memory. And people knew about sort of what they called senile dementia, but this woman was only 51, so he thought the case was really unusual. And he ends up following her until she eventually passes away, and he looks at her brain under a microscope, and he sees these two structures, which are plaques and tangles. We now know that they're made of two proteins called amyloid and tau. And that's what defines Alzheimer's disease. When we use that term, that's what it means. It's built up of these two proteins under a microscope. 
And so Alzheimer's takes his findings, he brings it to this meeting, and he presents it to this group of very accomplished uh, scientists. And there is complete silence. It's as if you know, no one seems to care, no one is interested. The moderator says, well, it seems like there's no questions, you can have a seat. And later in the day, someone actually gives a presentation on excessive masturbation and the whole crowd goes wild. Everyone thinks it's the, you know, the most interesting presentation. And Alzheimer's has made this enormous contribution to science, but nobody has any idea. And it's not until years later when one of his teachers actually publishes something and uses this term Alzheimer's disease that the disease started to gain traction. And those types, those types of stories are just so common. I had no, I had no idea about it until I went to research it. And we've also heard from many of you who have Alzheimer's disease in your family. Hello, my name is Nadia from Nature. My name is Karen. I'm calling from Cincinnati, Ohio. Hi, this is Barbara from Indianapolis. It's an incredibly difficult, debilitating disease for everyone involved. My mom has Alzheimer's and it is not just about losing your memory, your sense of smell, your sense of taste, your ability uh, for your muscles to work properly. It affects everything in the body as the brain deteriorates. I have Alzheimer's disease through three generations of my family and I do not have it yet. I'm 53 years old and have been caregiving for my father for 10 years. My um, partner is in his 50s. His father was diagnosed a couple years ago, and uh, it's very absolutely genetic in his family. His father had it, and his grandfather had it. So needless to say, we are very, very nervous about it. Now, Sarah, you said uh, Alzheimer's is caused by the presence of, of the plaque and tangles in the brain, but what are the key differences between Alzheimer's disease and dementia? This is a great question. That's the most common question we get in our clinic. And Alzheimer's disease is really, it's a, it's a word that describes something under a microscope. It's that we see plaques and tangles, and, uh, which are made of these proteins, amyloid and tau. We don't know that that's actually what's causing the disease. That's just the marker of it. That's how we define it. Dementia is actually a description of what goes on in the real world. Essentially, it's described someone who has difficulty with some of the complex activities of daily life, things like uh, they're not able to drive, they're not able to grocery shop, they're not able to cook, something like that, because of memory and thinking problems. So it turns out, actually, that dementia is kind of an umbrella term. It describes people who have difficulty with those conditions because of ideally, usually because of something neurodegenerative. Alzheimer's disease describes what's going on under a microscope in someone's brain. And we've actually gotten so good at detecting amyloid and tau, those proteins in Alzheimer's disease, that we actually can pick up some people who have amyloid and tau in their brains, but they actually have no symptoms. They don't have dementia. They function normally in the everyday world. But in their brains, we think they're building up amyloid and tau proteins. And we also can detect the opposite. There are people who have difficulty with, uh, you know, driving, cooking, uh, uh, grocery shopping. But we don't think they have Alzheimer's disease. We think it's something else. And Sarah, in just a sentence or two, what should families do if they believe a loved one is suffering from a neurological condition? You have to ask their doctor. You have to go and you have to go with the person. So don't send the person alone. Go with your family member and talk to a doctor. That's Sarah Manning-Peskin, an assistant professor of neurology at the University of Pennsylvania. Her book is called A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain.
Medical professionals have long relied on precision technology to diagnose health problems. We have blood tests to gauge overall wellness, MRIs for the brain and spinal cord, and EKGs for the heart. But when it comes to detecting mental illness, precision tools are extremely limited. That's why for the last 70 years, mental health professionals have relied on what many call the psychiatrist's Bible, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, also known as the DSM. It's a collection of criteria for psychiatric illnesses that's updated periodically. The latest version, the revised DSM-5, came out last month. Psychiatrists use the DSM to diagnose patients, write prescriptions, and request insurance reimbursements. But it's long been the subject of controversy, and we heard from you about your concerns. As part of earning my graduate degree in clinical psychology, I was trained to diagnose people using the DSM, and I did diagnose people. Having been diagnosed myself as a teenager with a major mental illness, and I should put that in quotes, I've been on both sides, and my experience of over 40 years working in the mental health system is that the diagnoses are very subjective. I understand why the National Institutes of Mental Health no longer use the DSM-3, because where's the evidence base? There seems to be none that diagnosing, labeling people is actually helpful. It can be extremely harmful, as it was to me. We're taking a look at the way we diagnose and treat mental illness. We'll hear from one of the psychiatrists behind the DSM-5 later on. But first, we're joined by Sarah Fay. She's the author of Pathological, the True Story of Six Misdiagnoses. Sarah, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Jen. So over the last 25 years, psychiatrists and other doctors have diagnosed you with six different disorders, anorexia, major depressive disorder, anxiety disorder, ADHD, OCD, and bipolar disorder, and you call these misdiagnoses. Why? I wanted to use the term misdiagnoses because I didn't want people to think that I was questioning the existence or the reality of mental illness. Mental illness is very, very real. I had a mental illness. I don't believe they're chronic, and I believe I've fully healed. But misdiagnosis, by definition, a misdiagnosis is incomplete, inaccurate, or incorrect, And my experience based on my lived experience and also the journalistic investigation that I did into the DSM is that all diagnoses in the DSM, with the exception of dementia and rare chromosomal disorders, are incomplete, inaccurate, and can be incorrect. We got this tweet from one of you who says, misdiagnosis is a very hard thing to come to terms with. I am autistic, but didn't realize it until last year. Before that, I was diagnosed with anxiety, depression, and bipolar type 2, despite never having a manic phase. These misdiagnoses led me down a dark path. I was led to believe that I needed meds that made me worse off and that I would need them until I died. Now, Sarah, you got diagnosis after diagnosis, medication after medication, but your symptoms didn't improve. What was that like for you to navigate? I so relate to that listener who wrote in. And and one thing I'll say is that I've heard from so many readers of Pathological, just that they feel relief in knowing that maybe the problem isn't them but that we've been looking for the answers in diagnosis and they may not be there simply by the nature of the flaws in those diagnoses. 
for me, it was very similar to what that listener said in that I started with anorexia and it was a word I'd never heard of. And in reality, my situation could have explained why I wasn't eating. My parents were divorcing. I was extraordinarily sad. I was going to a new high school and I was terrified. And I had a stomach ache that felt like a dark pit in my stomach. I was only 12 years old and I didn't want to eat. And so, but that never came up. And the moment I heard the word anorexia, I started to see my emotions and my thoughts and my behaviors through a lens of diagnosis. So as I got older and I started to get more diagnoses one after another, I just never thought to question them. And I never, one, I was you know predisposed to looking at myself through a lens of diagnosis. And then two, I was receiving these diagnoses from men in, you know, my GP, men in white coats with stethoscopes around their necks. And I had heard that diagnoses were biologically caused and that they were chronic. That's what I was told. I would have these for the rest of my life. And then later learned that that isn't necessarily the case. And let's add two more voices to the conversation. Joining us now is Dr. Paul Applebaum. He's a professor of psychiatry, medicine, and law at Columbia University. He's also the chair of the DSM-5 Steering Committee at the American Psychiatric Association. That's the group of experts responsible for overseeing revisions to the DSM. Dr. Applebaum, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Also with us is Dr. Thomas Insel, a psychiatrist and neuroscientist. He was the director of the National Institute of Mental Health from 2002 to 2015. He's also the author of Healing, Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health. Dr. Insel, good to have you with us. Good to be here, Jen. Thanks. I want to repeat the number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's free, confidential, and available 24-7 in English and Spanish. If you or a loved one is struggling, call 800-273-8255. That's 800-273-8255. Dr. Applebaum, according to the National Institute of Mental Health, 46% of American adults will meet the criteria for a DSM diagnosis in their lifetime. And many of the critics of the DSM worry that the more disorders and definitions there are, the more likely it is for people to be overdiagnosed. What's your response to that concern? Well, you know, nobody seems to have a similar level of concern about the fact that 100% of us will have a physical illness during our lifetimes. Um, Human beings are complex structures, both physically and mentally. uh, And over the course of a lifetime, we are perturbed by the things that happen to us in, in many ways. So I don't find the number particularly troubling or surprising. Uh, We know at any point in time, 7% of us are experiencing major depression, uh, and and somewhere around 2% of us are experiencing other very serious mental disorders. It is is a common problem, and I think the the NIMH data uh, underscore just how common a problem it is. Now, Dr. Insull, in 2013, when you were still director of the National Institute of Mental Health, you cautioned psychiatrists in your field to think of the DSM as a dictionary, not a Bible. What were your main concerns back then, and and where do you stand now? Well, at the time, we were trying to understand a little bit better how to develop better treatments uh, for a range of mental disorders. 
what I was, I wasn't speaking to psychiatrists so much as to our own audience at NIMH. NIMH is a research funding institution. So we're talking to the scientists who are doing the research to try to understand psychopathology, the range of mental disorders. And what we were seeing a lot at the time was because of this sense that the DSM was was the ground truth, well, what was the Bible. Uh, often people would do experiments where they'd be looking for a biomarker, just as you said at the beginning, Jen, you know, looking for the blood marker or something in um, uh, neuroimaging or in genetics. And they'd find something interesting, but it would only be present in 50% of people who had a diagnosis of major depressive disorder, according to DSM. And so they'd say, well, that can't be right because it doesn't match up perfectly with the DSM. And the message we were trying to send to the scientists was, wait a minute, believe the data, not the DSM. Let's collect the data and let the data tell us how to, as we used to say, carve nature at the joints, how to actually figure out where the boundaries of these different categories ought to be. So rather than throwing out the biomarker, let's throw out the diagnosis and start with the data to tell us what the diagnosis should be. Where am I today? I think it's still important to use the DSM for psychiatrists and even for people who are in primary care, as Sarah said at the beginning, which is how many, many people get diagnosed and get treated. Um, it's not perfect. And I think we all have to have a lot of humility in the way we approach um, putting labels on behavior, putting labels on how people feel and how they think. But we have to have a language. And I think if we can continue to think of it just as a dictionary and not as a Bible, not as an encyclopedia, not as something that's revealing the underlying biology, but simply as a useful tool for communicating with each other that we all see the same symptoms clustering together, that could be helpful. And I, I think we have to have some sort of way to do that. Otherwise, we're just um, in, in a Tower of Babel. Dr. Applebaum, a revised version of the DSM-5 came out last month. What are the major updates? So the DSM-5 text revision, as it's called, um, was explicitly aimed at updating the text, but not necessarily the diagnostic criteria in the DSM. Uh, In addition to descriptions, concise descriptions of the criteria used to diagnose mental disorders, the DSM has a lot of other information which is based on the scientific literature about each disorder. Uh, And since the DSM-5 was published in 2013, a a great deal of of new data have become available. So the goal of the DSM-5-TR was not to start over, not to put all the diagnoses on the table, uh, but to look at the text and to try to update that text as thoroughly as possible. In addition, because we, since 2013, when DSM-5 came out, have a new process of uh, making iterative changes to the DSM as new evidence becomes uh, available, um, the uh, manual also reflects all the changes that have been made since 2013, uh, and they're they're embodied in in this new uh, edition as well. I wanted to ask uh, Dr. Applebaum about a 20, 
in 2012, nearly 70 percent of DSM-5 task force members reported financial relationships with pharmaceutical companies. What kind of disclosures are required about these relationships? So for the let, let me tell you about the, the most recent revision uh, process for the DSM-5 TR. Uh, everyone who was involved, and there were approximately 200 people who participated in the revisions, uh, was required to disclose all of their relationships with commercial entities. And every change that was made to the DSM text was reviewed by the two co-editors. And if there was any way at all in which it could be seen as potentially beneficial to commercial interests, it was flagged sent to an independent reviewer. If that reviewer concurred, it was taken out of the manual. So there, there was an extensive uh, vetting process for, uh, for the latest edition. And for the sake of transparency, are you one of the individuals who has that kind of financial relationship? I do not. I have no financial relationship with industry whatsoever. And briefly, from a trust perspective, do you think disclosure is is enough, that that goes far enough, or would it be better to require doctors who are involved in creating these manuals to completely divest from those interests? So, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a tough issue. It's a tough issue because many of our um, most um, skilled and uh, advanced scientists uh, have some connection uh, with industry. Uh, and were we to exclude them all on a blanket basis, we would lose much of the expertise that's helpful in defining psychiatric diagnosis. Uh, and so instead, we have chosen a, a different route, full disclosure, absolute transparency, and a rigorous vetting process to make sure that uh, industry influence uh, is excluded from the manual. Here's an email we got from John. It would be great if the guests could discuss the challenge in even getting an appointment with a mental health specialist now. There have been numerous accounts in the media re- recently highlighting how difficult it can be to find care for mental health concerns, even for those with insurance. And Laurel tweeted, access to mental health providers is a huge issue. I can get in to see my child's pediatrician same week. To see a pediatric mental health specialist takes months of lead time. When a kid is in crisis, they can't wait to see the most expert person. Dr. Ensel, so how how much of an issue is this, especially when you look at the intersection of access and and communities of color who who have historically had less access to this type of care? Uh, Jen, it's a it's a big issue. Actually, Sarah referenced this at the top of the hour when she talked about the problem we have um, with most diagnosis and most treatment coming from primary care. Uh, that's largely because that's where people are able to get access to uh, any any real uh, ability to get to get help. Uh, part of this is that we just don't have enough professionals. Uh, some of it is the the maldistribution that they tend to be in urban centers on the coast and not so much in the rest of the country. Sixty percent of counties in America are listed as having um, too little mental health support. Uh, the, the solution that a lot of people have turned to is trying to find help online. So there are now many, many companies, some of them working through employers and some of them working direct to consumer uh, to provide mental health support, including medication, including therapy, including group support, um, 
with a click of a button. Uh, that does provide access. It may not improve quality, uh, but for many, many people that has democratized care and it's given them the opportunity to, to connect with somebody, uh, often a specialist uh, who is available within hours instead of within weeks or months. Sarah, we've got just about 30 seconds left here, and I, and I want to give you the last word. After everything you've experienced, what advice would you give to those who are seeking help? The main thing I would say is that it can be helpful to move beyond diagnosis as the looking for the key to restoring mental health. And just that I, I also want to call on the media to address the misconceptions around mental health. Um, particularly whether or not they're chronic or episodic or biological or situational, that diagnoses have limitations. And the more we know that, the more empowered we as patients and families of patients can be. That's Sarah Fay. She's the author of Pathological, the True Story of Six Misdiagnoses. Also with us was Dr. Paul Applebaum. He's a professor of psychiatry, medicine, and law at Columbia University. He's also the chair of the DSM-5 Steering Committee at the American Psychiatric Association. That's the group of experts responsible for overseeing revisions to the DSM. And Dr. Thomas Ensel, a psychiatrist and neuroscientist. He was the director of the National Institute of Mental Health from 2002 to 2015. He's also the author of Healing, Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health. Sarah, Dr. Applebaum, Dr. Ensel, thanks for speaking with us. Today's producers were Colleen Grablick, Catherine Fink, and Chris Remington. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.